With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Beyond any shadow of doubt that Hubbard was a charlatan, a confidence trickster, a liar, I proved that every one of those claims was a complete and utter lie. It was total fiction from beginning to end. Now, what about the later years in Hubbard's life where he's become this amazingly wealthy founder of a religion and into his later years. What's the story there? Well, what happened was that, uh, you know, I think he was surprised by by the success of Scientology, but, but delighted, of course, at the same time. And he he became a megalomaniac, I think. I mean, I think he began to lose touch with reality because um, he was making money. He was the, he was the founder of a, of a so-called religion. He was living very high on the hog. Um, he decided that, you know, normal rules didn't apply to him. You know, for any sane person to read this stuff and take it seriously is, uh, in my view, beyond belief. And it's an indication to you and to everybody else that uh, of, the, the, of the state to which Scientologists are, I can't think of a better word than, than brainwashed. And you, you, to believe this kind of uh, blarney is incredible to me. I mean, but yet, but yet they do. I mean, you know, no sensible sane person would consider this stuff to be anything other than the daftest science fiction you could imagine. Welcome, everybody, to NWCZRadio.com, Channel 1's Down the Rabbit Hole. My name is Big D. And I'm Brandon. And it is wonderful to have everybody along. I hope your new year is going well. I know ours is going pretty good. We were just chatting about it before we started the podcast because Brandon's in Washington State. I'm in Texas, and we get together you know, once a week or so and chat it up. And sounds like you're, you got some things on the move. Yeah, we're, we're we're in the process of you know getting some things cleaned up around here and some things done and uh, talking to the real estate agent, figuring out exactly what things we need to do to to get this place sold and get the hell out of Washington. <laughs> it's always a good plan. Always yeah. a good plan. So we've started out the new year with a bang, and I think a lot of people liked the the Yeti episode that we did at Christmas and the time we got a email. From Johnny Boy about the time, apparently he was spinning his head. Uh, yeah, Johnny Boy's a great guy, but sometimes I'm not sure. I think he goes farther down these rabbit holes than we do. Oh, that's the whole point of this, is to get people thinking and going down their own rabbit holes. And yeah, we, we introduce the topic, and sometimes we go very deep. Like I think on this little mini-series, we're going to go deep. Mm-hmm. And, and I've noticed that too. On some of them we do, we go really deep. Like I think we're going to go really deep on this mini series, but others, you know, like I, I feel like Jack Parsons, I could have gone deeper, but at the same time, I'm like, there's so much there. I'm going to give you a taste and you want more. You need to go let look. He is a fascinating. And there's some other ones that I feel like, you know, we give you just enough to, to let you know that, Hey, this is someone you should be looking into. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I will say before we start this series, if you are a, big student of or you have done super deep dives on Scientology and L. Ron Hubbard 
listen in. We may f- tackle something that you haven't heard before. Or if there's something that we missed, let us know. But oh. I mean, this is going to be something. This is going to be multiple episodes. This isn't going to be, yeah. Absolutely. Yes. If we miss something important, definitely let us know. Or if you want to refute anything that we're laying out there, because I have not been a Scientologist. No. I've read Dianetics. I actually took the test, whatever. I can't remember what they call the test now, the Dianetics test, I'll just say. Just, I don't remember. I, I, I've been researching so much on L. Ron Hubbard, I haven't even actually got to the Scientology part. Well, the, the book Dianetics, they used to set up these... Oh, I remember that. My dad, he got it once and was like, because he's Mormon, so he falls for that stupid stuff. So he got it once and was looking at it, and I'm like, oh, God, no. Well, I read it just out of curiosity, and they used to set up, I'll just say, tables around Mm -hmm. town and would ask you, hey, would you like to take this test? It's a personality test, I believe is what they called it. And I mean, I knew what I was getting into. I knew I wasn't going to fall for it, but I thought, well, I'm going to take this. I just want to see for myself where this goes, what this is all about. Mm-hmm. And so I did, and it was exactly what I expected. I think it's pretty standard. They tell you, oh, you have a lot of potential and you have th- this positive quality, but you really need, you know, if you really wanted to have a fuller life and to be a fuller human being. You, we, we recommend these courses and it's the entry. It's the gateway into giving them I mean, tons of money. Occasionally. I'll go to some like, you know, uh, events like smaller, like, you know, uh, Renton would have the taste of Renton or whatever and stuff like that. And you go there and they'd have a booth. They still have a booth as of like, I think I saw them like four, three or four years ago before COVID. They had a booth and I think at Puyallup Fair, they would still have one in that big Right in that big middle area, you'd still run into them and see them there. Yeah, they're on university campuses. Or, but it's or always, least, like I said, it, it's it's hidden. It's like personality tests, but you'll see the Dianetics book, and you're like, oh, I know what you are. I right, you are. right. And I knew going in. That's why I did it, because I'm, I'm always curious. And so in order to know what I'm talking about, I'd, it's I've like what I used it. to invite Jehovah's Witnesses in and have debates with them. So Yeah. <laughs> so we're going to go down the rabbit hole on L. Ron Hubbard and then into Scientology. But L. Ron Hubbard is where we're going to start because obviously he's the founder of it, but his life is bizarro world. It is. And that's one of those things like we were talking before we started recording about how he made up all these lies about what his life was and what he did. And in all honesty, the truth is fascinating without the lies i mean the lies makes it a little more fantastic but with just the truth he he had a very interesting very fascinating life i think for the time he grew up which i think he was he was born in 1911 he led a pretty adventurous life as a kid he did And a lot of it was thanks to his parents, obviously. He was just a kid, but they moved around to lots of different places. He went to different schools, which can be a positive and can also be a negative. But he traveled around the world and was an Eagle Scout and all these different things. He was not a dumb guy. Yeah, no, not at all. Not at all. He was a very smart, very intelligent guy. So what we thought we'd do is we'll start with the facts of L. Ron Hubbard's young life, and then we'll go into the tall tales, and we'll go into his claims and the timeline and all these things that lead up to the book Dianetics, which became Scientology. We'll try to get it in this episode. I don't know that we're going to. This is going to be, between L. Ron Hubbard and Scientology, this is going to be I don't know, several episode yeah. thing. I think it's going to be a lot like Mormons when we did the Mormonism, uh, you know, Latter-day Saints, where we talk about them, where it started off, we talked about Joseph Smith, and then I think that ended up being over a month-long series. Yeah, well, this will be at least a month, I would guess. So this would be, yeah, because, I mean, it gets fascinating, I mean, because you get the early starts to who L. Ron Hubbard is, then you get the, you know, beginnings of, you know, Scientology and all the stuff that went through there and then Miscavige taking over and then where they are as of tonight as of now I mean it's it's actually it's a fascinating story and a fascinating read if it wasn't so evil Operation Snow White yep did we do an episode on Snow White I did one that's right you did 
And then also the time they tried to take over Clear, Clearwater, Florida. Mm-hmm. There's all kind of nutsy things. But let's start with Elrond and the facts. And so I'm going to start with Wikipedia just for the basic facts because they've done a, I think they've done a good job just laying down mm-hmm. this part of it. The basics. Yeah, the basics. His name is Lafayette Ronald Hubbard, and he went by L. Ron Hubbard in his author state. And he also had some other author names. We'll get into that later down the line. But L. Ron stands for Lafayette Ronald Hubbard, and he was born March 13, 1911. He was born in Tilden, Nebraska, but most of his childhood he was brought up in Helena, Montana, His father was in the U.S. Navy. He was uh, based on Guam. In the late 20s, L. Ron Hubbard traveled to Asia and the South Pacific. And in 1930, he enrolled at George Washington University to study civil engineering, but he dropped out his second year. He was an officer in the Navy during World War II, where he (laughs) briefly commanded two ships, but he was removed both times. He did such a good job, though. Yeah, we'll get into all of that. And then he died in Janu- on January 24th, 1986. He was 74, and he died in Creston, California. Now, you go to the Scientology.org. This is what they say about L. Ron Hubbard, the founder of Dianetics and Scientology. Such an adventure is also what ultimately led L. Ron Hubbard to the founding of Dianetics and Scientology, and thus a route to previously unimagined spiritual heights. Among other landmark events, the journey, in July of 1952, L. Ron Hubbard became the first to scientifically isolate, measure, and describe the human spirit, while objectively demonstrating spiritual potentials well in advance of scientific thought. And then it goes on to say that L. Ron Hubbard directed the rise of Scientology churches all over the world, the birth of a worldwide religion. It is a practical religion. It is applicable to every aspect of human existence, and it is religion for here and now, but at its core and within every church of Scientology lies this enduring invitation from its founder. Quote, we are extending to you the precious gift of freedom and immortality, factually and honestly and then there are a whole bunch of videos on this page and their version of his childhood was basically that he was born with this innate gift and he was a genius and the world just didn't understand him he was too smart for school which is why he got kicked out and why he dropped out and the professors bored him because he was so far ahead of them and that he was just it was his destiny to share this with the world yeah there's also ron hubbard he he is the messiah to the scientologist he is the messiah yes yeah and like a lot of stuff that i got i've been like i was telling big d i've been listening to um barefaced liar or barefaced messiah by uh russell miller and that's got a lot of information about his childhood and everything like that. I haven't even gotten to the part of the book about Scientology, but this was a book that was actually banned in the United States when it first came out. Yes, it was. So there's also if you go to lronhubbard.org, they have a page on basically life and times, a profile of Elron Hubbard, significance events, and according to them. It's the same kind of thing. It gives, you know, basic histories of his grandparents and him. He had some relationship, according to him, with this Blackfoot medicine man, this shaman, and that he was ushered into the tribal ranks as a blood brother. And they had some amazing ceremony for it and all that stuff. And yeah. Right. But that's his recollection. recollection. Oh, yeah. This is all this is all from his side of things yes that he was uh, an ama- he had an amazing military career i'm just going through this right now and according to them in 19, 1930 and 1931 he goes to george washington university where he studies engineering and molecular physics 
But what most engages him is extracurricular experimentation to isolate a long postulated life force at the root of human consciousness. He is further searching out long pondering dynamic principles of existence for the unification of all available knowledge. Also in an extracurricular vein, he earns national renown as a free flight daredevil and Midwest barnstormer. And then also they say he, in, he starts on this uh, literary career. Never mention that he drops out. Hmm. They talk about this 5,000-mile vo voyage that he goes on after that. And he's a photographer for the New York Times. He, then he goes on this uh, in West Indies mineralogical expedition, completes the first mineralogical survey of Puerto Rico. And in 1934, 1936, he starts what they call a literary phenomenon, pulp fiction. And he did. He wrote a lot of pulp. He did. He, he has a lot of writing credits. I mean, he wrote a lot of really popular, you know, articles and non or fiction fiction stories. A lot of those. He's actually written, according to several things I've read, he's written more than any other author in American history, word wise and book wise. Yeah. Now is that true? <laughs> truth well, or that, those are their claims. He lived in Port Orchard, Washington, for quite some time. This is during the the mid thirties mm -hmm. where he was, he would go to this winter retreat and he would write all these books and it goes on and on. It talks about him becoming a captain of, of boats and there's a lot of boats in his history and everything like that. And I mean, after reading a lot of stuff about him and how good he was with boats, there shouldn't have been. No, because according to this, in 1941, <laughs> he earned his Master of Sail vessel license for any ocean. And three months later, he's commissioned as lieutenant of the United States Navy Reserve. Yeah. There was that. He also had a, he was a glider pilot. And according to this, this is, again, this is from lronhubbard.org. This is how they, po they put it. With the United States' involvement in the Second World War, Lieutenant Hubbard is dispatched to Australia where he coordinates relief for the beleaguered forces under General Douglas MacArthur. <laughs> I don't remember Douglas MacArthur ever being beleaguered. I don't either. He was a national hero. Mm -hmm. I mean, MacArthur was... Well, because of L. Ron Hubbard. L. Ron Hubbard's the one that came and helped him not be beleaguered. became a national hero. Right? right exactly. Sure that's what they're, that's, sure that's, that's what basically they're what they're saying. He went in there and he, he saved the day. Well, didn't he serve in all five theaters? According to them, the according one. to him, yeah. Yeah. And then in 1950 is when he put out Dianetics. But there's a lot missing to these stories. They, these, are, these are timelines that have serious problems. Because L. Ron yeah. Hubbard was... Was basically what was the name? What's the name of your book? Bald faced, um, bare faced messiah. Yeah, it should have been called bald faced liar. Yes, yeah, because there's a lot of stuff in there where you're like, what? Like I was telling you, there's one, and I can't remember. It's an author. They were he was in a group of authors, like, and they would sit there and have that the little like round table and talk about stuff. And one of the authors looked at him one day and said, "According to your stories, you should be like 84," and he was like 25. Because, like, when you did the math on everything that he supposedly did, it should have added up to that he'd been alive for, like, 84 years. So, and half the stuff where he claims, like, the Puerto Rico. Puerto Rico has no record. No. Zero. Not ever happening. No, of neither the does the United cover. And neither Sorry. does the United States. Yeah. There's no record. The only record of him doing this is from his mouth. And there's a lot of things in his past where the only record is from his mouth. And everybody else's record of it is completely different. Well, he was, a, he was interesting, too, because he would write letters to the CIA and the FBI claiming all kind of wild stuff. And I found this on Smoking Gun. And this was a letter that he wrote to, I believe he was writing to, it was one of the two, CIA or FBI. So according to this letter, Hubbard has corresponded with the Bureau and the Department of Justice on several occasions for various reasons, including complaints about his wife and about 
communist. In one lengthy letter in May 1951, it is perhaps noteworthy that Hubbard stated that while he was in his apartment on February 23, 1951, about 2 or 3 o'clock in the morning, his apartment was entered, he was knocked out. A needle was thrust into his heart to produce a coronary thrombosis, and he was given an electrical shock. He said his recollection of this incident is now very blurred that he had had no witnesses and that the only person who had a key to the apartment was his wife. <laughs> he wrote several of these weird letters to these, to them about his wife, about these supposed communists who were out to get him. He was paranoid. He was like super paranoid. He was. He was super paranoid. But also, too, as like Scientology was first starting to get off the ground and then whenever they had issues with anyone, the easiest way for them to deal with somebody who left Scientology or any of that, which, like we said, we haven't even got to that part, was to claim communism. He would just point out and say, hey, he's a communist. You know, I, I have proof that so-and-so is a communist and it would just destroy him. And that was the best way to deal with anybody at that time was, oh, you have a problem with this person? Just call him a communist. Right. You know, write MacArthur, write the CIA, say, hey, this person's a communist. And it would they would come and investigate him. And even if they prove that they weren't communists, their lives were destroyed already. Yeah. Well, when we get into Scientology, their fair game policy is mm -hmm. exactly that. And that was it. It was their fair game. And it's like we've go back. I, we did an episode on gang stalking and they are huge. They basically invented it. They basically invented gang stalking, and that's one of those things. I'm pretty sure after this airs, we're going to get gang stalked. I kind of hope. Sounds like fun. that'd be awesome, especially where I live. <laughs> be stalked. Oh, my neighborhood. You walk into my neighborhood. We on New Year's Eve. I met some of the neighbors I hadn't met before. We we are a gun toting neighborhood. This neighborhood should just all move to Texas. Yeah. <laughs> so according to BusinessInsider.com, I thought this was interesting. After dropping out of George Washington University, L. Ron Hubbard, that was in 1932, he started his career as a writer, and he was doing all this pulp fiction, science fiction type stuff, and he was paid a penny a word. So no wonder he wrote so, so much. Yeah. He published over a thousand books, and he does hold the Guinness World Record for the number of books published. In fact, he also holds Guinness records for the most translated author, the most audio books published by an author, and the most translated author of the same book, which is The Way to Happiness. So, I mean, like I said, I mean, without the fact that he started a cult, I mean, he was a successful author. Oh, yeah, absolutely. He was making tons of money. Now, I think once a book, in the early days, once the book was published, he didn't get anything from the sales of the book. He was just paid penny yeah. per word. So he's hammering them out as fast as he can, which I don't blame him. You're making money just, and as long as you can keep a gig, you're getting paid pretty good. Yeah. But when he started into his esoteric sort of um, journey into spirituality and all of his thoughts on humans and the afterlife and all of that stuff, that's where he... Well, when we get into it, you'll see he strong-armed a lot of people. There's a reason why he's the most translated, most copied, and has all these books out there. Because Scientology makes tons of money, and they just mass-produce these things. Yeah, big time. And that was one thing, too, is, I mean, you know, he was a prolific author, but, I mean, he has so much, I don't know. I mean, he, he was a science fiction author which really goes to look like, like you're a science fiction author, and then most of your cult is based on science fiction. Yeah, and I have nothing against science fiction authors. Not my favorite genre to read, but I know a lot of people love science fiction. Mm -hmm. But that's what it is. It's fiction. Yeah. It's fictional. But then he turned Dianetics, which, I mean, into a, an actual like religion, which is insane. Here's another thing about him that actually happened when he was in the military he would write that he sunk two japanese subs and, and that's true if you go look at the claims of l ron hubbard he does claim to have gone out there and you know changed changed the course of history by sinking these subs but in fact the reality is just off the coast of oregon he opened fire on what turned out to be a log and dropped most of his depth charges on underwater magnetic rocks 
And it was one of those things too. It's not like they were magnetic rocks. Nobody knew were there. It was well documented that this would it would show up on you know whatever. I don't even know whether they were using it at that time radar sonar. Their radar, whatever. yeah. That radar that it would show up on radar that there was something there, but it was just magnetic rock. So it wasn't something that a weird phenomenon that nobody had ever heard of. This was well documented that it existed. Yeah, if he was any kind of admiral or head of the the boat who could read charts, they were there. Mm -hmm. Like you said, they it wasn't like they just showed up. Yeah, and then also he accidentally shelled a Mexican island. <laughs> <laughs> he lobbed bombs basically he lobbed mortars and stuff at a mexican island and it pissed them off so much that they almost declared war against us it was a huge international incident yeah that has sort of been swept under the rug but he did that and then he was relieved of his command and according to this and they're skipping some things but after that after world war ii he moved to los angeles where he befriended rocket engineer jack parsons and joined in the California branch of the Black Magic Cult, Ordo Templa Orientis, Orientis. the, the o which, OTO. Yeah, which, I mean, I did an episode on Jack Parsons where I kind of, um, I mean, glossed over quite a bit that he did, be, but he was a big part of L. Ron Hubbard's life. I mean, L. Ron R Hubbard's second wife, he took from Jack Parsons. So. Yeah, we'll get, into, we'll get into that. Growing up in his younger life, they did move around quite a bit. It's pretty wild. He lived in he lived in Seattle for a while. He lived in Bremerton. He went to Queen Anne High School, where he got kicked out. His dad was stationed in Guam, so they went over and joined them. Because the timeline, like you said, is weird. Because it, it's which timeline do you go off? The true timeline that they say is the truth, or the timeline that Scientology says is the truth? Well, I'm looking at a chronological timeline of him. According to this, in August of 1929, he returned to Helena and he was rejected by the Navy for poor eyesight. And then he, that's when he was trying to get into George Washington University. He enrolled in the USMC Reserves. And then on September 24th, he actually got into George Washington and became a reporter for the newspaper, The Hatchet. Well, and I know his, like, when they found out his eyesight and everything, he tried to get into the Navy and get into Annapolis. And it tested for Annapolis, and I think failed two or three times. Yes. And then ended up finding out that his eyesight or whatever wasn't good enough, so he couldn't go in anyway. He also failed exams for the Naval Academy on December 18, 1928. At George Washington University, he was the president of the gliding club, but he, his grade average was a D, which is why he had to leave. He dropped out and was sent to the Red Cross in Puerto Rico, which is that's why he was actually in Puerto Rico, because he was with the Red Cross. Yeah. You mean he wasn't doing a geological survey? Well, he might have been in his head, but he wasn't there very long, because in, on April 13th, 1933... He married Polly Grubb. So his expedition over there wasn't very long. No. No, and he had a couple of those because he had a whole other expedition where he got a bunch of people together and they did a, an expedition with the, it was like 50 kids or whatever, and they got together and did some expedition. It was supposed to be some motion picture expedition to the Caribbean and of all the, you know, the, the pirate strongholds, which what pirate strongholds? It was 1930s, dude. Um, so they went and did that, and he ended up, they never even made it. They had so many problems and infighting and everything else, they never even made it. But then they called it a, a success because they got all this stuff and sent all these things to the New York Times and you know all these other places that have no record of it ever happening. They have record of the, the voyage happening, and on the, on, but none of the research that supposedly came from it. But if you read Scientology and their stuff he did all these great things and did all this great research and it never happened according to anyone else anyway so after he got married he his first child was born 1934 may 7th and his second child was born on january 15 1936 and he's still trying to get into 
the military at this point. He tried in 1939 to get into the U.S. Air Corps. Didn't happen. According to this, March 1941, Ron has various people writing, lobbying him to get into the Navy. And so on July 19, 1941, he finally joined the Navy as a lieutenant. He was then sent to New York to train as an intelligence officer. February in 1942, in February, he was sent home from Australia for annoying superiors. On October 1st, 1942, relieved of command and turned to headquarters. He went to submarine chaser training school in Miami, Florida on November 2nd. Then he was based in Portland, Oregon. On June 28, 1943, he shells the goats on uninhabited South Coronados Island, Mexico. <laughs> on July 7th, he was relieved of command and sent back to headquarters in San Diego. And then he was assigned the USS Algol under construction at Portland, Oregon. In 1944, Algol got commissioned. September 22, 1944, Ron applies for Navy School of Military Government at Princeton after, quote, de detecting sabotage. He leaves the Algol, so he thinks people are... He's paranoid. This guy's paranoid his whole life. Oh, yeah. He's usually paranoid. September 5th, 1945, he's in the hospital with ulcers. He has four routine medals, including those to, to all who served during the time of Pearl Harbor and of the surrender. But if, according to Scientology's website, he was highly decorated with these special awards. I think they awards. said 28. That he had like 28. And medals. some of them were ones that nobody gets. He was the only one who got it because he was so amazing. But the ones he really got, Navy pistol mark, marksmanship meant he was a decent shot with a pistol. Navy rifle marksmanship. American Defense Service Medal. Everyone got that. The Asiatic Pacific Campaign Medal. Anybody who was there got it. American Campaign Medal. Once again, everybody. World War II Victory Medal. Everybody that was in the military when World War II ended got that medal. Not that, not to say they're not worthy medals, but the fact that he's claiming that, you know, I got all these special medals and 28 of them that nobody else got. No, you got the medals that everybody got. Yeah, and it's everybody there's no the shame in having those medals. Those medals are great. No, they're great medals, and I mean, it means you served our country, you did your, your duty, everything else, but... It doesn't make him any, I mean, which he's American serviceman. Good job. Thank you for your service. Everything else. But he tries to make it sound like he was like the Terminator. Yeah. And he wasn't. Exactly. <laughs> I did find this interesting as far as timeline goes. December 5th, 1945, he's discharged from the Navy. He moves in with Jack Parsons, Pasadena, and is introduced to the uh, OTO. In August of 45, he's introduced to and seduces Parsons' girlfriend, Sarah Betty Northrup. And then January 4th, 1946, Hubbard and Parsons engage in the magical Babylon working. Now, Babylon working, what that was, is they were trying to birth the Antichrist. Mm -hmm. So the, from what I've read and looking at Aleister Crowley's incantations and magic sex rituals basically what happened is they went into a room they did all these incantations and you know summoned demons and yeah. lords or whatever and then ron hubbard l ron hubbard was sitting in the corner masturbating and chanting while parsons and the sarah northrop were having sex with the idea that she gets pregnant and she births the antichrist yep that's how that went down yeah and they did a couple of those they did that one the antichrist and then it was the uh scarlet woman was another uh one that him and hubbard did together so and both of them have to do you know there's sex involved and everything else the the scarlet woman i'd, I'd have to look more into that one to see what that one really was i kind of glossed over it i think with jack parsons episode but um that one has they're usually almost all oto has something to do with sex and their magic and hubbard and jack parsons i believe were alone when they did those rituals yes yes they were so um yeah the antichrist one sarah was there 
but I think the other ones that you know the the Scarlet Woman that was just Jack and Ron. So also, think what you want with that one. I mean, I don't know what kind of you know, like I said, OTR rituals. Almost all of them have sex, some sexual element. Oh, all of them did. The, well, um, it was just it was basically perverted freaks, mm -hmm. just using I don't know. I'll just say incantations as an excuse to be heathens. Yeah, and, and I'm not saying that you know Ron and Jack Parsons had sex, but I, I'm saying they probably did. Two and two equal four a lot of times. Pretty much. Also in 1946, Ron and Polly they formed this partnership. So now they're together. And they form this partnership called Allied Enterprises. And Polly goes to Bremerton and they use this, um, they borrow money from Jack Parsons to buy a yacht. Several, I think it's three of them, isn't it? It was three yachts. And it ended up being, I think it was three, a yacht and it ended up being two cutters. But they told him, I think it was three yachts. Right. So Parsons gets tipped off. He goes to. Which, by the way, Polly is Sarah. They, she, they, she switches names throughout the story. Right. Yeah. Okay. Sorry oh, about that. Because yeah. yeah, when you said the Polly, I'm like, oh yeah, that's right. Polly and Sarah are the same person. They're... She switches names, like I said, throughout the story. It gets weird. It is very strange. It makes I me wonder if she, if she had like dual personality. It makes you wonder because I think later on, even she, she, I think they call her Betty at one point too. Well, so and it's if like you Polly, Betty, and Sarah, all the same person. And if you read L. Ron Hubbard's writings about her. It seems to me she had maybe multiple personalities. It's possible. I mean, it was all messed up because when Jack got together with her, she was Jack Parsons' wife's younger sister. Yes. Who at the time was 17 when they got together, which a lot of people made a big deal that it was, you know, statutory. But honestly, in California at that time, 16 was the legal age. Not that it makes it right, but just, yeah, legally morality-wise, ew. Yeah, well, and if you're wondering what happened to L. Ron Hubbard's uh, first wife, she's left in the wind. Yeah, and he on, just left her. And on August 10th, he marries the Sarah Northrup. She's now 21. Yeah. And so he's married to two women, technically. Yeah. So that would be bigamy. And legally and in reality, he was a bigamist. He was so, and I mean, he just and I mean, he just pretty much left his first wife, you know, with his family in Helena, Montana, just kind of left her there with their two kids, and off he went to do whatever. Yep. And Ron and Sarah moved into where he grew up in Bremerton, Washington, and that's kind of where they started their thing. But the interesting thing about these boats, <laughs> so he Jack Parsons didn't have a lot of money. He did, but he blew it all because he was stupid. Right. But the 10000 that he, quote, loaned L. Ron Hubbard, according to several things I read. It broke him. It, yeah, it broke him. And L. Ron Hubbard gave him all these assurances that they were going, to, they were going into business together and he's going to buy yeah. these boats and they were going to get rich, basically doing trade around the world. Well, actually, from a lot of stuff I read, it was really basically what he was trying to do was just basically boat flipping. He was going to buy the boats in Florida and then, for whatever reason, take them to L.A. and sell them for a huge profit. And along the way, they were supposed to be picking up yeah. stuff. And doing some random things along the way and everything else to make money, too. But it was, right. yeah, it was some huge scheme, which seems like with L. Ron Hubbard throughout his life his entire life was some scheme on top of another scheme yeah and then fast forward yeah talk about schemes in august 19th 1948 he's prosecuted in san luis obispo california for passing bad checks so to escape that ron and sarah then moved to savannah georgia and he's supposedly working on this book of psychology but he's basically rolling out more pulp fiction and stuff yeah now, there's some things about L. Ron Hubbard that he wrote down that are just bizarre. There's some debate about this. Basically, everything I read and all the conclusions are this actually did come from the pen of L. Ron Hubbard. And it, is, uh, it was basically titled The Admissions of L. Ron Hubbard. 
and it was like a diary that he wrote and it's all it's been authenticated now this church of scientology will tell you it's not true well it's they they will say from what everything i said they will say that he wrote it but it was fictional well you be the, we'll be the judge we're going to read through some of these i'm going to put the link in the show notes you can, it's long there's a lot of of these admissions which again reads like a a diary like a diary yeah. that he wrote to himself. So we'll start with this one. He says, quote, you are as sensitive and sexy as Pan. Lord, help women when you begin to fondle them. You are master of their bodies, master of their souls, as you may consciously wish. You have no karma to pay for these acts. You cannot now accumulate karma, for you are a master adept. Your voice is low and compelling to them. Singing to them, for you sing like a master, and it destroys their will to resist. He believed at one point that in a past life he invented music. Mm -hmm. And that he was some sort of like amazing singer. It had some spell. And I think this goes back to the OTO where he's using language like you're the adept. Yes. Well, and the OTO is famous. I mean, that's one of their big things that the OTO does is they do have the whole thing of, you know, uh, the, the the magical thought that if you think something and keep saying it that you'll bring it into reality which i mean there is some positive thought there is some back backing to that psychologically but they took it to a whole new level so i could see where they could read that and say well that might be fiction because he's talking about uh he's not talking about himself specifically in that quote yeah but there's this my wife left me while I was in a hospital with ulcers. Polly was quite cruel. She was never a woman for me. She was undersexed and had bad sexual habits such as self-laceration done in private, which means she was a cutter. Yeah. She was no mate for me, and yet I retained much affection for her. It was a terrible blow when she left me, for I was ill and without prospects. I know by this she actually wanted no more than my ability to support her. This has had an effect of impotency on me, and has badly reduced my ego. Now, the, the irony is, is that he left her. Yeah. He completely left her. She didn't leave him. He also goes on and says, Polly was very bad for me sexually because of her coldness physically, the falsity of her pretensions. I believe myself a near eunuch between 1933 and 1936, or question mark, when I found I was attractive to other women. I had many affairs, but my failure to please Polly made me always pay so much attention to my momentary mate that I derived small pleasure myself. This was an anxiety neurosis which cut down my natural powers. It doesn't sound to me like he's talking about a fictional character here. He's very specific about dates in this. He is. There's a lot of that where he's very specific about dates and things that are happening. Uh, here's another one. In 1938 to 1939, I met a girl in New York, Helen, who pleased me very much physically. I loved her and she me. The affair would have lasted had not Polly found out. Polly made things so miserable that I finally detested her and became detested by Helen, who two-timed me on my return to New York in 1941. This also reduced my libido. I've had Helen since, but no longer want her. She does not excite me, and I do not love her. That could be about anybody. Oh, yeah, it's just a character. <laughs> he also said this, Sarah, my sweetheart, is young, beautiful, desirable. We are very gay companions. That does not mean homosexual. And at that yeah. time, gay was very gay was happy. Very happy. He says, I please her physically until she weeps about any separation. I want her always, but I am 13 years older than she. She is heavily sexed. My, my, my libido is so low, I hardly admire her naked. So this guy was sex-obsessed. Sex oh, yeah. A lot of his stuff is about sex. I mean, but that's OTO. The OTO is all, I mean, their entire freaking thing of the OTO is sex. So once he got into that, but really technically, I don't think he was ever actually part, part of the OTO altogether. He just hung around with them. Yeah, yeah, he just hung around with Parsons, and I don't think he joined the club, as you say. Yeah. This I thought was interesting, too, because I think this also goes into his reading or being involved with the OTO. 
He says, testosterone blends easily with your own hormones. Your glands already make plenty of needed testosterone. And by adding to that store, you make yourself very thrilling and sexy. Testosterone increases your sexual interest and activity. It makes erections easier and harder and makes your own joy more intense. Stilbesterol in five milligram doses makes you thrill more to music and color and makes you kinder. You have no fear of what any woman may think of your bad conduct. You know you are a master. You know you will be thrilled. You know you can come many times without weariness. The act does not reduce your vitality or brain power at all. You can come several times and still write. Intercourse does not hurt your chest or make you sore. Your arms are strong and do not ache in the act. Your own pleasure is not dependent on the woman's. You are interested in only your, your own sexual pleasure. If she gets any, that is all right, but not vital. Many women are not capable of pleasure in sex, and anything adverse they say or do has no effect whatever upon your pleasure. The, their body is thrilled to you. If they repel you, it merely means they themselves are too frigid or prudish to be bothered with. They are unimportant in bed except as they thrill you. Your sexual power is magnificent and they know it. If they are afraid of it, that is their loss. You are not affected by it. You have no fear if they conceive. What if they do? You do not care. Pour it into them and let fate decide. <laughs> wow. Yeah. He's a special one. I mean, that's one of the things I think that got me the most, like listening to him is sometimes, and I mean, I get the whole misogyny of the time, but some of the misogyny from him in some ways, it's just like, wow. He does say this about his singing. Your voice is low and compelling to them. Singing to them for you sing like a master. It destroys their will to resist. You obey the conventions. You commit no crimes because you need not. You can be intelligently aware of their morals and the laws of the land and fit your campaign expertly within them. And then he specifically says, Jack Parson is also an adept. You love and respect him as a friend. He cannot take offense at what you do. You will not wrong him because you love him. And these are just a few. It's, a, it's yeah. long. Oh, it's long. There's a whole lot of them. I mean, if you go into them, there's a lot of them. And a lot of it's oh. very specific, so I don't understand how i mean i know why they don't want to claim these as being actual affirmations of hubbard but how can you say that these are all about somebody else or some other character or it's it's him just right you know writing random thoughts about something he wants to write about later because he's very specific dates times names yeah and and he's, he's like working out his philosophy. And in fact, a lot of it sounds, in my opinion, like if he's, he's raping some women because he doesn't care. Oh, it wouldn't surprise me. I mean, I mean, like I said, I mean, OTO had a, I mean, I don't know if the OTO and I mean, even Alistair Crowley wasn't really into the whole idea of rape and everything else. But I mean, it was do as, well, what is it? Do as you will or whatever, what, do as thou wants or whatever the freaking the phrase is. Um, do, what th do what thou wilt shall be the whole of the law. Yes, there you go. And that's kind of one of those things is it's like, I mean, he took a lot from that. And I mean, there is a lot of that. But then it's one of those things that, I mean, what's interesting is just some of the, it seems like a lot of those writings are the beginnings of his thoughts into Scientology of the whole idea of, you know, you don't need a psychiatrist. You can just talk yourself into being, you know, all you need to do is work on your Thelans or Theons or whatever it is again. But, you know, and a lot of those writings seems like the beginning of it, like where, you know, almost like, you know, I guess not to really compare it to comedy, but when you're writing a joke, you start off by writing the, the beginning thoughts of it. And then that joke evolves over time. And that's, I mean, I guess Scientology is a joke, but it started off, you know, with the, these writings of his, and then they, they evolved over time into what Scientology is, but I don't think they want them, anyone to know that they really, they're real because if they're real, then Scientology isn't just something that popped out of Ron's head and his reality that someone told him this is something that he developed and evolved over time. Well, according to this article, these documents were actually stolen from Scientology. It says the documents 
were allegedly part of a cache of up to 15,000 pages of personal papers stolen by this guy named Armstrong, a Scientology devotee for 12 years. He stole them for, quote, life insurance when he left the organization and became an outspoken critic of the church. Armstrong claims that Hubbard had permitted him to use his papers under a contract to produce a biography of Hubbard, and the, of course, the church claims otherwise. Yeah. There's, there's so much more in there. It, and it's not, all, it's not all about sex. It's about how he goes into all these thoughts about how handsome he is, how talented he is. It's basically like a daily affirmation of how wonderful he is as a human being. He's so mm -hmm. smart. He's convincing. He's basically using a mind trick to convince himself that everything's okay. He's the master of everything. Nobody can touch him. Nobody can bring him down. There's no reason to be depressed because he's great at everything. And it's just on and on and on building himself up into this, I don't know, it's like a god, I think, is what I would say. Yeah. And that's how he saw himself. And that's how he sold himself. As we get into Scientology, you will see. They believe he's, they don't believe he died. They believe he just shed his body and he went on to another planet to do more research. Yeah, he had more research to do, and but he couldn't do that research within his body. So, so yeah. I know we're probably going to get some blowback from some people, and that's okay, because Scientology, if you know anything about them, if you go after L. Ron Hubbard, they go after you. Yep. That's the wild thing, because if you look at almost any other religion, and, and I hesitate to even call them a religion. I mean, they're, they definitely are a cult, but yes. I, don't even, I don't even know if they're a cult. They're just, <laughs> I, don't even, I don't even know. They're in their own special category, in my opinion. But they're a cult in the way that if you join them, you're supposedly in for life. And if you leave them, they will hound you and come after you. Just watch the Leah Remini series on Scientology. They tortured her for years. Yeah, they did. They'll torture you for years. If you step out, you become, you know, an SP. And if you're an SP, your family can't talk to you. I mean, you're, you are alienated from everybody you know, and there's a lot of, I mean, Scientology has a lot of very highly important, highly, you know, powerful people. Well, also, L. Ron Hubbard had this uh, weird habit when he went into hiding, and we'll get to that probably in the next episode oh, yeah. in more detail. There's no evidence that he had sex with these girls, but there's no evidence that he didn't either. But when yeah. he was roaming around in hiding on this boat, because he was basically just hanging out in in international waters. Yeah, because he was he was safe there. Well, the one thing with the the girls and him not having sex, I think part of that comes down to, and I don't know if it would change, but I think he I think by that point, I, I I'm pretty sure he was. It didn't work. Yeah, it was he was impotent. Yeah, he was impotent by that point. And of course, they don't say that and everything, but I'm sure it was. But I'm pretty sure from everything that I've been able to read and everything I've seen, he was impotent by that point. So I don't know if that would have changed things and if he would have. But I mean, the girls have come out. Every one of them has come out and said there was never any sexual. But they wore like freaking halter tops and, you know, Daisy Duke shorts. And they did really weird. Th he had them do weird things. Like yeah, put like his, wash his hair, dress him, undress. Yeah, they, he taught him how to put his socks on so as to they didn't disturb the hairs of his legs. Yeah, you know, they give him massages. They would follow him around. He, they would have to do imitations on command, mm -hmm. and there were there's a bevy of them, and they were all super well trained. He snap of the finger. They would put him into bed at night. They would bathe him. They would do his nails. They, I mean, they were just basically servant slaves. Yes. And it was, you know, according to them, it was a great thing. It was an amazing position uh -huh. to have to be so close to this God figure. Yes. And they should all be so lucky to be chosen. And the amazing thing, too, is that they all looked almost exactly alike. It, it, as I was reading the description of them, it reminded me of the Robert Palmer addicted to love video where they had yep. all the models that looked exactly the same that's how he chose his girls hmm. same haircut same height same weight same breast size same everything yeah and some people said that 
those who knew or saw pictures of when he first met, what's her name, Polly, Jack Parsons? Sarah, Polly, Sarah, Betty, whatever her name Paul, is, whatever. that yeah. they all resembled her. Yes. When she was really, really young, when she was 19, 20, or whatever. So he was a freaky dude. There's no doubt about it. Big time. And an absolute stone cold liar. Mm hmm. And same thing with Mormonism and same thing with Jehovah's Witnesses. It's amazing to me that their leaders, who are supposedly these amazing individual human beings who have elevated themselves or received special messages from God or who have this wisdom beyond mankind and all this stuff that, that they've elevated themselves into these high positions. A lot of it comes down to, they were like sexual deviants. Mm -hmm. They were liars and had like these grandiose visions of themselves. And if they, but at the same time, they actually led pretty fascinating lives. They just stuck to the truth. I don't think anybody would have as much ammo on them. No. And, and that's one thing I think with L. Ron Hubbard, he had enough, a uh, fascinating life enough that I think it would have been, I think his life would have been enough without the lies. But I think he started so young telling the lies. Cause I mean, if you go back and you look at a lot of his stuff, the lies start when he's like 10, 11 years old. And I mean, part of it too, is I think the way his family taught him, treated him, his, you know, his aunts would basically protect him from his own mom. There's a story that, you know, was told from the family about how at one point Ron did something and his freaking mom washed his mouth, mouth out with soap. And five minutes later, you know, someone hears a yell and the mom's in the, the yard being held down by the other two sisters while they're washing her mouth out with soap. Say, if you're going to do this to Ron, we're going to do it to you. So, I mean, he he was believed, which is the same thing you get from, you know, Joseph Smith when we talked to Mormons, where his family believed and told him that he was this special person to a point like i mean not just like we always tell our kids you're special like really special that um you know he already had it in his head so he had to be special everything he did had to be above and beyond so whenever he did something that was average he had to make it sound like it was 10 times better and even if he did something that he was the top of the class he had to be way above and beyond the top of the class so he exaggerated everything right well he made up Degrees. He claimed to have a PhD in nuclear physicist. He, mm -hmm. he claimed, but the degree he got was from the Sequoia University, which was a degree mill. You just basically you pay it. Yeah, and that didn't come out until the Australians started looking into him. Nobody really bothered to look into it until he mm -hmm. was put on trial in Australia. Uh, he also was quite the racist. Apparently, here's a couple That's of quotes. Surprising. Yeah, so when he was in China, he says this, the smell of all the baths they didn't take. The trouble with China is there are too many chinks here. Yeah. When he was and in the, they could make a lot of money if they just turned the Great Wall of China into a roller coaster. Right. He said this about South Africans. The South African native is probably the one impossible person to train in the entire world. He is probably impossible by any human standards. And then to his wife, he said, go and get yourself a N-word. That's what they're made for. So he was, uh, he was special in many, many ways. Mm. A lot of fascinating stuff on him. I mean, there's still more to go. Yeah, I think we're going to have to do another episode on the transition from Elrond, his later life, when he, from diet. We'll start next episode with Dianetics. Okay. And then we will move into the early days of Scientology when he was involved and how he set that up in the, the fair game policy and the, the sea org and all the crazy stuff that Elron did while, while he was in charge and much like a lot of these other cults that we've looked at, eventually he went on the run and went into hiding and, we're going to, we'll look into a lot of that stuff His the silent burst that they used to do the, uh, the attacker attack, the attacker policy that they put into place and the fair game policy and all that stuff. That's all from him. Yeah. His disconnection policy, all this stuff, because once he realized that this book Dianetics was taking off and he could 
basically make a religion out of it. He changed, his philosophy changed, everything changed, and the money came rolling in, and so did the lawsuits, and that's what we'll look at next week. Definitely. All right, well, that's it for this week. Brandon, you have the midweek episode? I do, I do. I haven't completely decided what I'm doing on this week, though. I've got a couple ideas in my brain, but we, we will see what we come up with. All right, in the meantime, I'm Big D. And I'm Brandon. And we're out of here. See you later.